Hello everyone, welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis and I'm an associate editor with the Fetal and Neonatal Edition and it's my privilege to introduce this discussion-based podcast on the topic of a recently published article entitled Don't Stop Now, How Long Should Resuscitation Continue at Birth in the Absence of a Detectable Heartbeat? I'm joined today by Dr. Dominic Wilkinson and Professor Ben Sensen, and I'd like to, to welcome them and to introduce themselves briefly. Uh, and first, Dominic. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm Dominic Wilkinson. I'm a consultant neonatologist at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford and uh, Director of Medical Ethics at the University of Oxford. And Ben. Hello. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm Ben Stenson. I'm a consultant neonatologist at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. I'm the editor of the Fetal and Neonatal Edition of the journal. I've been a member of the Ethics Advisory Committee of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health and also a member of the neonatal group of the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. Thank you very much. And this is a, a topic of, of discussion that means a lot to uh, pediatricians and often pediatricians find themselves in a difficult situation of a baby who requires prolonged resuscitation. Dominic, could you just briefly outline some of the background to the paper you've written and what really has prompted a paper such as this at, at this time? The background is that uh, thankfully, most newborn infants don't need extensive resuscitation at birth. Most uh, don't need any resuscitation. Uh, most who need some help uh, just need some help getting started with their breathing. But unfortunately, a small number of infants, uh, perhaps only one in a thousand or less than that, need quite extensive resuscitation, are born without a heartbeat, uh, not breathing, and in that situation, doctors will usually commence measures to try to resuscitate the infant. Now, the, there are a variety of things that, that doctors can do. can intubate the baby, uh, commence cardiopulmonary resuscitation. But as that continues, if the infant doesn't show any response to resuscitation, the question is whether those resuscitation efforts should continue, how long they should continue, and whether... Uh, there's a risk in particular that continuing resuscitation will cause harm to the baby. And that can be in two ways. One is that the baby will have intensive, unpleasant, perhaps resuscitation efforts continued for a long period without success. Perhaps of more worry to clinicians is that the baby's heart will restart after a long period. Uh, their breathing might be able to be supported but they will have suffered such severe hypoxic brain injury uh, that they will, as a result, survive with profound disability. In the past, systematic reviews and guidelines have looked at the available evidence and suggested that continuing resuscitation for more than 10 minutes was not likely to result in infants surviving without very severe disability. So the international neonatal resuscitation guidelines have suggested that resuscitation beyond 10 minutes, clinicians should consider whether or not it was appropriate to stop resuscitative efforts. Thank you for that. And Ben, to follow on from Dominic's discussion of the background, do you think the current guidelines are appropriate and usable? I think that's an important point, Jonathan. Guidelines go through a meticulous process of 
evidence review and are then written on the available evidence at the time and they're set in stone by whatever is available when they're published. The process for neonatal resuscitation guidelines is linked to the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation Processes for Evidence Review and they produce an updated evidence statement every five years. So the, the last one was in 2010 and the various resuscitation councils have since that time based their guidelines on that. So the next ILCOR statement is actually due later this year and it will be refreshed and some of the evidence that we have reviewed in the article that Dominic and I have written will have been available at the time of that ILCOR review but I'm not so sure that all of it will have been. The bottom line is that the guidance was based on a historical experience which was substantially that children who still had no heartbeat after 10 minutes of resuscitation, nearly all either died or the very small minority of survivors were very severely handicapped. And the thing that's changed over time with publication of newer studies is that the newer studies, some of the infants, but not all of them, having been treated with cooling, have shown some data suggesting that the chances of survival with normal neurology are possibly a good bit greater than that historical perspective. So we're simply saying that it's right on that basis to, to question whether an APGAR score of zero at 10 minutes is reliable enough data to make such a big life and death decision. Thank you. Dominic, just come back to you. People who are listening to this podcast may be taking on a registrar post for the first time or maybe an experienced consultant, neonatologist or, or pediatrician. In a reasonably short answer, and I know ethicists can, they, they can use a lot of words to answer their questions, but in, in a reasonably short, for a reasonably short framework, could you outline the ethical considerations that someone should go through when thinking about stopping resuscitation? The reasons for thinking that maybe resuscitation should be stopped we can think of them in, in three groups. The first reason to stop is because it's just not going to work. And we might call it futile. And some of the summaries of evidence in the past have used that sort of language and suggested that resuscitation for more than 10 minutes for a baby born without a heartbeat was futile. But the new evidence clearly contradicts that, showing a significant number of infants surviving uh, who had no heartbeat still at 10 minutes or longer. And of those who survived, as many as half of the survivors having no significant long-term disability when they're assessed at several years of age. So the first point, is it futile? It doesn't seem on the basis of the new evidence that resuscitation is futile. The second reason for stopping is because it would be harmful, that the risk of, in particular, of severe disability is so high that we would be harming infants. And for the registrars trying to make these difficult decisions, for the consultants who are on the phone desperately trying to drive back into the hospital in the middle of the night after getting the call that all of us hate, that fear is right in the front of their minds about what am I going to consign this child to if we continue resuscitation. And again, the recent evidence is very reassuring. In Australia, they had uh, 13 infants who were resuscitated in this situation and got to intensive care. Five of the 13, less than half survived, 
Of the survivors, four of them appeared to have normal development at one to two years of age. So it it doesn't seem likely that overall infants will be harmed by continuing resuscitation for some period longer than 10 minutes, exactly how long we'll probably come back to. And the third reason for stopping resuscitation might be on the basis of the views of the parents. So if parents have very clear views about what's the best interest of their child, uh, they were worried, for example, about the burden of resuscitation, the burden of intensive care, and the risk of long-term disability, and they made an informed decision in conjunction with clinicians that resuscitation was not a good idea, that would be a good potential ethical justification for stopping. The context of these decisions is that is almost never possible uh, because these resuscitations occur often out of the blue. Parents have had no warning, no time to think about what's happening. Doctors have had no time to counsel them, to ask them, to gauge their views. Uh, so th that decision in the heat of the moment is almost never available. Okay, and so I suppose what I hear you say is that Practically in these situations, you're suggesting that people should err on the side of continuing resuscitation with possible withdrawal further down the line when the heat of the moment perhaps has passed and there's more evidence available. Is that a reflection of what you've said? That's right. Well, when we are in a situation of uncertainty about a newborn infant, generally we will err on the side of providing life-saving treatment. And the, the recently revised Royal College guidelines around limitation of treatment reinforce this idea that unless there's been a chance to have a careful, robust conversation with parents and their views are known that in, in the first instance, we should provide a treatment. The second part of this is about then being in a position to stop intensive care if it appears that an infant has sustained severe, uh, profound global brain injury. We know that most infants with severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy who die do so following decisions to limit treatment. And the ethicists like me will say that there's no ethical difference between those decisions to stop treatment in intensive care and then decisions not to provide uh, resuscitation. We shouldn't be afraid of those decisions to stop intensive care. Thank you. Ben, to continue thinking about the evidence upon which this we're now trying to rethink this particular aspect of resuscitation, the studies that you've mentioned in the article are both reasonably small studies. I know this particular area is difficult to undertake in terms of a research perspective, but do you think the evidence is robust enough to change our practice? Is this? Do we need to collect more evidence? Is that ethically even possible to collect more evidence, or, or is the current evidence that we have sufficient to, to be able to continue this conversation? One of the reasons I'm so interested in this topic as a journal editor is to take the opportunity to encourage people to gather more evidence and publish it so that any recommendations can be as informed as possible. And clearly the amount of evidence that we have to consider is extremely small at the moment. There are lots of reasons why people might question its validity. Uh, one of the things I hear people saying is, well, there are probably loads of other kids who were resuscitated for longer and didn't survive, whose outcomes are not included. So these data might be overestimating the chances of 
survival. I'm not particularly worried about that because the outcome, if resuscitation is discontinued, will be that they won't survive anyway. So the babies who I'm worried about are the outcomes of the survivors. And I think that we need to get people to engage in systems of reporting so that we can get as much data as possible about the outcomes of the babies who survive. The more recent data suggests that if continuing resuscitation beyond 10 minutes were to become more widespread, then we might see more survivors. And our best estimate at the moment from the data that we have is that around half of those survivors will have no disability and the other half will have quite significant disability. Of course, as the number of survivors goes up, those proportions might change. And emerging data on that might help to refine our recommendations a great deal. All we can say is we've looked for all of the evidence there is, and it's pointing towards the outcomes being better than has historically been considered. But we definitely need to improve that. I hope that this kind of topic will give rise to something like a future population-based study through something like the British Pediatric Surveillance Unit or other national bodies in other countries so that we can progressively refine this information. Thank you. So we've had a, a fairly good sort of discussion about the evidence and how these decisions are based on and some of the ethics, but coming back to, to practicalities, uh, Dominic, what should a paediatrician in delivery suite faced at, with this, this sort of situation, what should they do? When should they consider stopping resuscitation? Do you have any practical ideas for the paediatrician who is, is, is in this situation? The obvious first point to make is that we should first focus on providing excellent high-quality resuscitation where it's needed um, and making sure that the resuscitation that's being provided is appropriate, that tubes are in the right place, that the protocols are being followed. In terms of how long it should continue, the evidence that Ben and I have reviewed suggests that 10 minutes may not be long enough, but the really difficult question is to know how long to continue for. Uh, in our paper, looking at the very small amount of evidence that there is, we suggest that continuing for longer than 20 minutes appears much less likely to result in survival without very severe impairment. So it may be that represents a, a practical time at which it would be appropriate to discontinue. And again, from a practical point of view, it's very difficult to, in 10 minutes, feel confident that everything has been appropriate, has been done in terms of resuscitation, that the people who need to be there to make decisions are able to be there and have got all the information that they need. In the middle of the night, it's extremely difficult to get a consultant often to be physically present or on the phone with all the information that they need to make a decision, certainly in less than 15 minutes. And Ben, really the same question to you? Uh, no, I think Dominic's characterised it very well. It's still simply a self-fulfilling prophecy that if we stop resuscitating children for 10 minutes and they all die, then their, their outcomes cannot improve. The data we've reviewed suggests, in fact, that since recommendations of that nature were originally considered, that the outcomes have improved. And I think there's every reason to be optimistic that they may yet improve further. We need more data, not more rules that will place a limit. But it's really important that if we go forward in this, people gather that data and report it, because clearly the longer you continue, 
the longer a fetus has had its brain exposed to an oxygen, the lower the chance of recovery will become. And there must be a limit whereby we'll reach consensus that the balance of risks and benefits suggests that the intervention is harmful. We just actually don't have the data to say whether we're anywhere near it yet. We've got to creep forward cautiously, gathering information meticulously in the hope that we acquire that knowledge. Well, thank you both for quite a stimulating conversation and discussion. And I, I hope that this is more the start of the discussion rather than the end of it. If people want to comment or make comments to either of the authors or myself, all three of us are present on Twitter. Dominic Wilkinson is at Neonatal Ethics. Ben Stenson is at, at Stenson Ben, and I am at, at Jonathan underscore Davis 3. And we'd be very interested to hear your comments. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.